right, we're back, sort of. You know, I, we said it was going to be like a crawl and then a walk and a, a run, and it feels kind of like a crawl this morning. One of the quirky things I do is name awkward things that are right in front. You know, I name the elephants, right? If there's an elephant in the room. You know, a lot of you came this morning hoping to maybe be like those coals in the fire that are drawn together, and it's, it's nice to be together and all that. And those coals kind of feel like they're spread out all over the sanctuary, and that's okay. I'm glad you're here. This is a start. We're going to get there. And we're going to gather steam as we go. And, um, and, and increasingly, uh, we're going to reclaim what this, um, this pandemic has paused for us. I'm also going to make some other disclaimers before I uh, enter into the, the, the actual sermon and reading, reading of the text. Because I'm, I'm covering something this morning. I'm going right at something that is very sensitive and emotional. And it's, it's racism. Uh, it's on everybody's minds. It's been on our minds. We're going to have a, a summer series that goes in a, a little different direction, but this morning we're going to take a straight run at what we're all uh, seeing in the news and dealing with on a daily basis and in relationships. Let me start here with a story about when uh, we were new parents. Uh, Beth and I brought the three little babies home, and we decided, and I alluded to this in my uh, uh, article in the, in the newsletter, you know, we decided that if... Um, if our, that, that we needed to, to keep the NICU's uh, schedule of the kids feeding and wake time and then play time, go to, go to sleep. And, and then, so because we thought that it was, although it was important for us to meet the needs of the children in the moment, it was uh, also important for them to have functioning parents, right, <laughs> over the long, over the long um, haul of this thing. So, so, so many times in the, in the middle of the night, you know, I'm just, you know, just sitting there, have a sleep, just patting that little behind, you know, that little diaper behind, just pat, 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 back to sleep. Because, you know, we had to get them through that urgent moment, that urgent moment. There's a need there, and it's a real need. It's a legitimate need, but, but it's coming out in a way that needs to be managed with a bigger perspective. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a reaction. And a lot of times what we want to do is just move into that need that we're seeing and make something happen right now. Well, this morning we're going to consider, we're going to consider how to have a little bit more perspective on that. You know, here, here are a couple reasons why we avoid talking about racism. Uh, first of all, it's so easy to offend people. You know, I, I said in the early service, I, I probably uh, offended uh, some of the folks on our, our, our praise team. They, we sat down and, and before the service, and I said, you know, if I say anything dumb, will you, will you all tell me <laughs> so that I don't repeat myself in the second service? And it was just crickets. They were just looking at me. I can't believe he said that. And then it's like, no, I really appreciate you just saying it, you know, just coming right out and saying it. We avoid it because we're worried about saying the wrong thing. We need to talk. We need to have a talk. We need to talk about these issues. The second reason we avoid it is that a lot of times people are competitive about how woke they are, right? So you might, you might think that you're, 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 you're being sincere and you're trying to say something and you're worried about saying the wrong thing and then somebody, maybe it's, maybe it's somebody, maybe a friend of yours, maybe somebody in your own family, and they try to tell you how that's not enough, you know? So we avoid all that too. And the third reason, and this is more just for, for our, our uh, First Presbyterian Church community, I certainly don't want to come across, nobody wants to come across here as if we aren't in this conversation already. We have been for generations, and, and, and 
I am amazed at the way that this church, when I read Saints and Sinners, a couple of books that were written about our church, um, you know, we kind of self-sort that way. Saints, sinners, you know, we have assigned pews and all the rest of that. But the, there are a couple of books written about our church, and you can, you can see through looking back at, at, at history of this church how this church has been engaged, and people present, people it, it presently and currently are, are engaged in our community, building relationships and solving these problems and, and stepping into that gap. And so I don't want to come across like, you know, hey, we got to get it on it, people. You know, come on, let's go, you know, uh, like we haven't been doing anything. We have been. And so let's just name these things so that we can have a real heart-to-heart, honest conversation. The last thing I want to say as a disclaimer is this isn't the end-all and be-all. Racism is not uh, something towards which the church now needs to pivot. We need to focus all our energy and attention on it. I don't think our African-American brothers and sisters want to be uh, constantly talking about racism. You know, we don't, we don't, we're not trading the gospel or the, the timeless, enduring truths or the vision that we have even for Thomasville for one issue. Now, it's an important issue. But we don't exchange the gospel for any single issue. You know, somebody said, whoever marries the spirit of the age will soon find himself widowed, right? There's going to be something else that comes along. That doesn't mean that the issue of any division or racism is going to go away entirely. What I'm saying is, we need to deal with racism directly, but we need to deal with it on the level of the gospel, of timeless truths, of those values that run under all of these vertical pieces that, 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 that we care about, all of these different issues. And further, we need to have a relevant voice. You know, if there's an opportunity, anytime that there's something going on in culture, we can go at it and talk about it. In a way, like, for example, let me just give you an example. When I was in youth ministry, you know, it was, it, was it awkward talking about human sexuality? Of course it was. It was awkward for the kids because I didn't mind. <laughs> so I just go right after it. Because why? What made me comfortable talking about these things? Even the nuts and bolts of it. Just, even, even just the human contact part of it. I'd go right after it. Why? Because of the beautiful design and the opportunity, a platform to take kids and see there is a design and there's a gift to life. And there are beautiful things ahead for you. And to be able to to name those things and recognize that all of, of these s- subjects, all these issues, we can talk about them. And we can bend people towards the gospel. So I was thinking about this week, and I was thinking, I just couldn't escape it. I know I, I wanted to get on with the summer series, but I felt like Philippians 2 just kept talking to me. Because when it comes to, when it comes to dealing with any any division. What's the real problem under the problem? It's it's really self-centeredness. It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. You know, as as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, these the, the the way that we're seeing the people react right now, that that phase of things will go away. It doesn't mean the problem goes away. It doesn't mean the problem goes away. So how do we continue to talk about it? In fact, here's what he said. He said, the limitation of riots, listen to this, this is, this is incredible. The limitation of riots 
moral questions about rioting aside, moral questions about rioting aside, the limitations is they cannot win. And their participants know it. Hence, rioting is not revolutionary, but reactionary. Because it invites defeat. It involves an emotional catharsis. But it must be followed by a sense of futility. You see, this, this phase of rioting, of, 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 of protesting, it's going to lose energy because you can't live there. You just can't live and sustain that anger and that hate. You can't sustain it. It's too burdensome. And so it's, it's upon people who are in, a, in, in the majority culture in any country around the, the world that when there's an issue and, and the way that we're trying to bring it up is not a healthy way of bringing it up, but it's a legitimate issue that we care enough that when it hits that futility stage, when, when you don't see any change happen because of the protest, you don't see any change happen because of the of the rioting, that we are willing to step towards that gap and have the conversation. Now, how do we have that conversation? What do we have the conversation around? What is that perspective that we approach racism with? What is it? Well, in a word, it's compassion. It's the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of someone else's need. From the Word of God, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11. When you turn in your scriptures, I'm going to be reading from uh, the English uh, Standard Version. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, being humbled, humbling himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Gracious God, bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand, but to our hearts to receive, that through our lives we may live. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's where we're going. A need measured and met. A need measured and met. That's compassion. That's what Jesus' life is a parable of. This this hymn, this, this, uh, this liturgy, this prayer, this... This, um, almost, like, almost like the way we said the Apostles' Creed, the early church said these verses. This parable of Jesus' life is a parable of compassion. It's a parable of, 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 of God who, who saw a need, 
who measured that need and met the need. A need measured and met. The accurate assessment and adequate supply of someone else's need. That's compassion. So let's, let's look at a need measured and met. First, first, the need. The need. Compassion moves towards the need. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's laying glory aside to move towards our mess, right? And I want you to see, as we're talking about the need measured and met, I want you to see a gulf or a gap, a gap that needs a bridge, a great gap, a great cavern. When there's a need, when there's a gulf between two people, two warring parties, two factions, two spouses, you move towards that need. You move towards that need. How? In humility. In humility. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's the core and root of any problem. Racism, any other kind of social problem, any other kind of conflict. It's selfishness, it's self-centeredness. See, Jesus moved towards that need in humility, the way, you know, I might move towards my wife in humility, right? I've told you before uh, this idea of, uh, of having in, within a marriage fierce moments of fellowship. Fierce moments of We need a laugh track, right? Fierce moments of fellowship. Sometimes Beth and I have fierce moments of fellowship. That's how I know. That, that, that's how she knows I'm alive. She's alive. She's in this relationship. We, we, we are working it out. We don't agree to disagree about everything. We're two people with two wills and two moods and two emotions, two agendas sometimes, and we need to come together and work through things. That's part of it. If you just agree to disagree about everything, that's not really putting a marriage together. That's not putting a relationship together. It's like somebody said about the parallel lines. Somebody said, oh, those two parallel lines, they have so much in common. Too bad they'll never get together, right? That's crazy. That's crazy to live your life just sort of parallel like that and just saying, we're going to agree to disagree about everything because it's just too fierce when we have those fierce moments of fellowship. But, but see, what, what Jesus is modeling for us, not only modeling, but because, he, because he's done it for us on a personal level, he's empowering us. He's empowering us to move towards others. Having fulfilled our greatest need to move towards others with the same kind of humility. A, the kind of humility that says, you before me, you first. The kind of humility that says, I'm going to count your needs as more significant than mine. The kind of humility that, 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 that just says, I'm not thinking less of myself, but I'm going to try to think of myself less and I'm going I'm to move towards you to give and not to get. It's like, you know, here's another example of this. When somebody is grieving, when somebody's in grief, it's so isolating. It's terribly isolating. And they need you to move towards them. There's a gulf. They need fellowship. They need friendship. They need relationship. They need communication. They've lost somebody. And there's a gulf. And so what do we do? Well, a lot of times we're worried about saying the wrong thing. We're worried about the awkwardness. We're worried about, uh, we're worried about May, bringing more pain to that person and they can become more and more isolated no you move towards it in humility saying you know what however awkward however painful however difficult however i mess up i'm gonna move towards you and see this is exactly what jesus is demonstrating and empowering us to do and when we apply the principle to racism we realize that what we're doing in focusing on racism and and trying to work out our salvation 
with this issue of racism is not reducing faith, faith to racism. But it is saying this, that, that part of the fruit of faith is someone who's willing to work things out where there are divisions. And part of the practice of faith is the same thing, right? It's a little like, let's compare it to this. If you want to be a and you try to balance your accounts and you, you try to make sure that there's more coming in than is going out, right? Uh, you try to stop borrowing. You, you try to be, and so, but, but the end all and be all of becoming a disciplined person is not your checkbook. But the practice of balancing your checkbook can certainly help you become a more disciplined person. And as a result, the count gets balanced too. Do you see how that applies? How difficult it is to deal with these sensitive and and emotional topics. That's why it's so powerful and amazing to look at Philippians chapter 2 and see what Jesus did and see that he's not just modeling it for us, but he's certainly doing that. He's not just modeling. He's empowering us. He's saying, look, as if you have experienced any of these things, if, if, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you have a relationship that's been restored with the God of the universe, you have something to bring to every division, to every difficult conversation, to every conflict, because it's you before me, because I'm giving, not going towards you to, to get. You have been empowered by the God who has bridged the gap with you. And a lot of times, the, so what, what's, what's being said here? This is a mindset. The, the word in here is translated, sometimes it's translated, let this be your attitude. It goes on and says, having the same love or having a, being one in spirit and purpose. It's a, you keep seeing the same, different versions of the same word over and over again. Sometimes it's called attitude. But it's really a mindset. And what is that mindset? It's the parable of Jesus' life. It's, it's you before me. It's not only but also, not only look to your own needs, but also to have a not only but also world is what we have to offer the world. That's why it's just so amazing to think of, of this ancient text being so relevant to today. That if we don't just sit, sit here and think, oh, how do we fix this as quickly as we can? And if we can be patient with each other, if we can continue to move towards that gap with the same kind of attitude that God is empowering us to bridge that gap. But we have to be willing to move towards that gap, to see it. We have to be willing to move towards the gap in all of its awkwardness, in all of its sensitivity. Now, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to justify ourselves and say, well, we've already been working on it. You know, in my little disclaimer, I kind of felt like I was doing that a little bit. You know, hey, we've been at this, we've been talking about this, but we don't want to try to toot our own horn. As a church, we have been plugged in. We've been trying to solve this problem. We've been in conversations. We've been in people's lives. We've been building relationships. I don't want to discount that. But we don't use that to justify uh, what is a status quo that, that may not measure up to what we would want for ourselves if we were in their position, somebody else's position. You see? So we don't want to just justify ourselves. Let me, let me illustrate that for just a minute, what it looks like to, to sort, of, you know, sort of have restraint rather than justify ourselves when we're feeling maybe uh, pinched by, by people who are hyperactivists or people who just want to fix everything now, do we want to say, hey, we've been working. We've been at it. Well, one time I was, when I was uh, at, at 
at a, a church where I served before I came here. And I'm, I'm using this church as an example because I don't want to toot First Presbyterian Church's horn. I, I, I wanna, I'm going to toot another church's horn, okay? I'm not going to tell you what church it is, all right? So here's, here's an example of, of what it's like to show restraint in the middle of this conversation. So here's a church that was incredibly generous. I mean, gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. I'm not even going to say how much. Just, it, it was big, a big number. And, and really fashioned its life around trying to maximize how do we do the most good. And I was down at this, this luncheon with a, with a bunch of folks that are trying to do some things in the city. A little collaboration. And there was a sad little individual there who, uh, and I put, him that, put it that way because I know that sounds very condescending, but this is somebody who uh, just really personalized everything and, was, and, and because of his personal issues brought it into every conversation that was trying to be constructive but brought personal things into it. And it was very sad and very, very disabling to the conversation. And he had just gotten involved in a ministry that allowed women who were in the inner city to go and work. Single moms to go and work. And he embarrassed me in front of everybody by saying, well, it's too bad that your church isn't involved in things like this. He had just gotten involved in this, this ministry. And, um, and he said, well, it's too bad that, that your, your, you know, your church up on the hill isn't involved in things like this. Little did he know that our church started that ministry. And little did he know we had four people on the board. And little did he know that I'd, I'd seen their, their financials and we were by far the largest, the largest donor to that ministry. You see, my point is this. We're involved in that way here in Thomasville. And we're dealing with, we're battling with perceptions that somehow we're aloof or we're separate or we're not interested or we're not caring. And that's what I wrestle with is that we are, we're plugged in, we're doing all kinds of things. But how do you say that without sounding, I mean, I already feel very self-conscious about what I just said. I mean, it's just hard to talk about the fact that we do care and, we're, and we are listening and we are there. We're showing up and we're building relationships and there's incredible generosity. And so it's very difficult to then say, but that's not the point. Because it isn't. It isn't. The point is, relationship. It may be that there's some adjustments that we need, need to make to the way we're doing things. It may be that, you know, like w when, when my wife and I were first married, I kept getting her little gifts, and she didn't really like little gifts. And I had to learn she liked acts of service. That was her love language. Oh, the love language. You know, maybe you've heard too much about that. But, I mean, it makes the point. It's like, don't work so hard when you can work smarter. And that's part of what it means to move towards the gap. To be listeners, to understand... What, what is bothering you? What conversation do we need to have? And not just to react. So you say, well, Tim, all right, I hear what you're saying. You're saying compassion is a need measured in net. And you're talking about the need, moving towards it, being willing to have the conversation, and, and being willing to move into that space where, you know, there's a lot of tension and awkwardness. I understand what you're saying. But it sounds like you're also saying, well, you just go there just to kind of be passive. It sounds like you're saying, Tim, you know, let's just go there and whatever they want, we're going to give. Or, you know, whether it's, whether it's a member of your own family who disagrees with, with, with your position on things or whether it's, whether it's a community that we're trying to reach out to. 
It sounds, Tim, like you're saying that we're just in it just to sort of be responders. Well, we are in it to be responders and not reactive. And there's a huge difference. Because real compassion measures the gap. You see, Jesus didn't just come and say, oh, what do you want? Here, here free cookies, whatever. You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, he came and, and he measured the, the need. He saw how deep and wide the chasm was. And he was equal to that need. And the cost was his own life. The cost was a brutal. It was a cost that you and I can't even begin to imagine because we don't know what it's like to be a, live in eternity in union with Christ, in union with God as Christ. To give that up, to give up the glory, to give up the dignity, to give up the power so that someone else... Well, see, we have to measure the gap. And, and what does that look like? That means you don't just react out of anxiety. You know, it means you don't just say, all right, let's, let's fix this quick because I feel bad. And you're making me feel bad, so let's make you feel better so I feel better. See, that's self-serving. It's self-serving. And you know what? It's very short-sighted. Very short-sighted. Let me read to you from uh, a book that I've read over and over again because I think it names everything that's going on in our culture right now. It's called A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. And he talks about, this is, this is difficult to listen to because it's kind of left brain heady stuff. So I, I had to read this passage myself a number of times to understand. So let me just tell you what he's saying before I, I read it to you. He's saying, look, if you deal with symptoms instead of conditions, you're never going to heal the condition. Now listen to what he says. When an entire society stays focused on the acute symptoms of its chronic anxiety, and he gives a bunch of examples, violence, drugs, teenagers, smoking, crime, ethnic. I love how he throws in teenagers just as a chronic problem. That's good. Sorry, teenagers. I love you. I love you. But when I was a teenager, I was a chronic problem, okay? It's your turn. Crime, ethnic and gender polarization, economic factors such as inflation, unemployment, bureaucratic obstruction, all these different things. He says, when we do that, in that case, the society will continue to recycle its problems, you hear that? Recycle its problems. No matter how much legislation it passes, how much it redistributes its resources, how many agencies it creates and dismantles, how many forms it finds for reinventing itself, or how many wars it engages in as a way of binding off that anxiety. You see, you can't form a federal program to fix relational problems. We have to be in the relationship. And we have to do it locally. And the more that we check out, we have a mental checklist that says, oh, well, that's, that's the next president, you know, or it's the current president or the next president's problem, or it's the next Congress's problem, or it's, a, it's the judicial branch's problem. We just have this mental checklist, and we're just like, you know what, I paid my taxes, they can deal with it, they've just got to get it better, they've got to tweak it, they've got to adjust it, you know? Then the less we're going to focus on the condition, the more we're going to end up continuing to recycle this problem it's called the quick fix it's called being drawn into a feeling of anxiety and rather than having true compassion that measures the depth and width of the gap what we end up doing is saying let's make somebody feel better quickly it might be your aunt who's up in arms about all this right and it's like let's find something to do that makes us, makes 
the, the problem go away as quickly as possible. And it ends up focusing on our own thing. Look, this isn't a political statement. But I'm going to tell you that we have to learn from our history. Conservatives make mistakes. Liberals make mistakes. I'm going to single out one particular mistake that we made after the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement stirred us up, right? Everybody got stirred up, and it was like, let's fix it. Let's do something. And what we decided to do was called the Great Society. And as a result of the Great Society, what we did was we disabled poor families. And, and, and we, we extended a safety net in a way that robbed families of their dignity and made it easy for, for marriages just to be set aside. And, you know, this is white and black. This is Caucasian and African-American. But guess what? If you're in a majority culture, or if you have connections, and your, your household falls apart, it's going to be easier for you than if you don't. If you're living in a part of, of Thomasville that, that you don't like to drive through, and, 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 and you're living there, and your marriage falls apart, and you don't have the kind of social capital that can help you uh, you know, that can help you divide the, 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 the assets and set things up, then you're going to be adversely affected to a greater proportion than others might be. You know, so th- so th- this is white and black. So I'm not singling out uh, you know, African-American families as, as, as falling apart uh, to the exclusion of white families. This is across the board. Our, we've been... We've been looking down on the idea of, of marriage and of commitment and as a building block of our culture. And guess who gets hurt worse because of this? People who don't have any resources to deal with it. Here's the statistic. During the 60s, black families were 78% married and stable. Today, it's 29%. And I'm telling you that I think part of the problem was us checking out on relationship, us... Uh, abdicating our role locally in, in, the, in local communities and thinking that the federal government is going to fix it. And it's not. I can't wait on them. There are too many anxious people wanting power or wanting to maintain their power and not really measuring the gap and not really trying to deal with the perpetual problem of self-centeredness. And not motivated by the right thing, motivated by guilt. They're motivated by something that maybe just wanting to feel better and not motivating, motivated by the love of Christ that we have been shown and as a result can steward to other people on so many different levels. So we need to, we need to bridge the gap by seeing it, moving towards it, by measuring it and seeing the depth of it. You know, pastors in the 1960s, uh, mainline church pastors, they, they saw just how uneven, as the, the world was becoming more global, they just saw, saw how uneven things were in the global south, in Central America and, and in uh, Africa and in, in South America, and they abandoned the gospel. Mainline, mainline pastors abandoned the gospel, thinking that, that they were going to make themselves relevant and helpful and that this was going to be the way that they were going to show the love of God They were just going to make themselves all about the cause of the oppressed, the economically oppressed. And guess what's happened since then? The global south has has abandoned their plan and embraced the gospel. 
It's an incredible irony to look at where the church is growing and, and abounding, abounding and solving problems and applying the gospel to the level of the human condition, self-centeredness and not just economics and not just race, but dealing with it on the level that actually fully addresses the problem and not just the symptoms. It doesn't mean the symptoms don't matter. It doesn't mean that Addressing the symptoms can't get us to the condition, it can. But we have to see how these vertical issues that we have, these vertical causes that we invest in, they are the cause celeb, they're the cause of the day, they're, they're, they're something that maybe is buzzing on Twitter this week, but might not be, be buzzing next week. And how do we take it to the level of values that grounds us in the way that God has called us, in the way that God has shown us to live that's better? You know, um, I want to close up here. You know, I've been going at this for a while. I hope you're seeing a need measured and met and how it works and how we're called and all the rest of it. But I want to just kind of personalize it with this little story I didn't have time to tell in the early service. Well, after Katrina hit, the um, Katrina, of course, is that famous hurricane that so many people got involved in. I was, one of the, I, I was down there early, okay? And... A guy that I know was a pastor of a church that just, I mean, the whole neighborhood got wrecked. Uh, first, I wasn't here at the time. First Presbyterian Church was involved in that area as well. And when I got there, um, I said, hey, can, we, can you tell me where we can maybe stockpile some water? You know, I'd like to, we'd like to go get some water and just have it available for all the volunteers. And my friend, he's a pastor, he says, no, I can't tell you. I don't know. I said, well, do you have a list of anybody that we can talk to that, you know, is sort of on this. He said, I'm not sure. I don't know. And after three or four more questions like that, I thought, why am I torturing this friend, <laughs> right? I mean, he doesn't know. He just got hit by a hurricane, right? You know, there is a sustained hurricane in our culture. There are some things that are uneven. And maybe the things that we're naming aren't them. But underneath all of this reaction... It's a conversation that we need to have. And we need to move in there to be in that mess and to recognize, look, we're going to do some things wrong and to recognize that maybe, maybe the people we're seeking to help don't really know what the problem is and, and can't really name what we see. And maybe we do have something to bring, but we need to move in humility. We need to move in humility. And we need to move with a, a sense of what the enduring value is that motivates us and that we have to share. You say, well, what can I do? What can I do? One thought to apply this week. <laughs> Mother Teresa, not everyone can do great things, but anyone can do small things in great love. Reach out, have the conversation. It's going to take some courage. You're going to mess it up, just like I did this morning, probably. But let's go, and let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you that you didn't count your glory as something simply to be hoarded, but you moved towards us to lend your strength. May we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. The hymn.
is number 101, verses 1, 2, and 4. You can remain seated in the room, but let's seal this time together with this, Come Thou Almighty King, asking God to be with us.